Welcome back, Great American Dynasty Podcast, Episode 9, here with Blake, and kind of on the downturn, Blake, if uh, I have to admit, I'm not exactly thrilled with what's going on or how we've um, performed, Um, you know, we're, I mean, let's just put it like it is we were a game and a half up on the wild card now we're a game down and as of right now we're only seven games over 500 when at one point we were i believe 12 or 13 games over 500 um three and seven in our last 10 what's happening um I'll admit I'm I'm a yeah, we're we're definitely on the downturn here. I'm a bit in panic mode. Um this is not the ideal situation. Um because you know you can talk all about strength of schedule. Um but you know I think uh C Trent uh it was who had a headline earlier this week who says yeah, strength of schedule doesn't mean shit when you, you know, start dropping games to lesser teams. So, um, I, for me, this starts with the lack of outfield depth and, you know, missing Jesse Winker um, with that hip flexor. Um, that's really exposed a huge weak spot on, in our roster. Um, now you've got those two everyday guys, Cassianos and uh, Naquin right now. That's pretty much our two everyday outfielders. And then that left field spot is just basically, you know, it it's a rotating wheel. You've got Schrock, Akiyama, and Aquino, you know, and you can make a case for Schrock, you know, he's, he's done well uh, in his appearances, but, you know, to me, he's not an everyday player. He's a guy that you plug in, you know, every time someone needs an off day and, you know, plug and play, he'll, he'll step up there. He'll get hits. He'll play some pretty solid defense. Um, but he's not that guy who's going to go out there every single day in your lineup like a Jesse Winker, and you expect him to, you know, have as much of an impact. Um, and then, obviously, Akiyama and Aquino have been struggling mightily. Um, you know, we don't really have to go too in-depth in that Um so, and then it, it comes back to another thing. We're just, like I said last week, we're just playing with tight assholes right now. Um, in that Miami series, I, I feel like it started in the Miami series um, with, and it continued into the Cardinals series with first inning runs. It started on uh, the 6-1 loss. Uh, that uh, start by Gutierrez where he didn't really have his stuff. 
Um, gave up five runs in the first. The very next day, Mally gives up two runs in the first. Um, then you've got another two runs the next game against the Cardinals. Uh, one run on a solo bomb the next game, and then another run on a solo bomb the next game. What that really does is that runs up your pitcher's pitch count uh, on one side of the ball, and that forces David Bell to go to his bullpen early because, you know, you have that one inning where you're going, you know, 15, 20 pitches. And, you know, from that point on, you're trying your best to work efficiently and get those contact outs. That's where, you know, more of these runs uh, come from is when you're trying to get guys to fly out, ground out, and these guys end up getting on. So, you know, it comes to a point where the pitchers need to start performing. You know, it's not necessarily their fault because, you know, we've had a great rotation all year. Don't get me wrong. Miley's been excellent. Castillo has, you know, he's struggled at times, but he's Luis Castillo. He's got nasty stuff. You know, we've got Mally, um, Sonny Gray. Gutierrez has stepped up uh, as a rookie this year. But, you know, we got to have these more efficient innings out of our pitchers so we don't have to use these, you know, are these bullpen arms in high leverage situations. Then it comes to the offensive factor because, you know, the offense is, you know, after, you know, say a two run inning in the first inning, I feel like their mentality turns into, Oh shit, we got to score and we got to score now. And they start swinging for the fences. You know, that's, that's not the pitcher's fault. That's a hitting mindset thing. But at the same time, you know, you got to hope for those, you know, quicker innings and, you know, more efficiency out of your starters. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing to point out in the, uh, the first inning in the, in these past couple of series, you know, when, especially when you've got, you know, workhorses on the mound and they're coming out, having to throw 30, 35 pitch first innings, you're kind of, forcing the hand of David Bell at that point Um, because you're getting into the sixth inning or even the fifth with already a hundred pitches. So you're kind of forcing, um, you know, he's been good as of late, but like you're forcing Amir Garrett into the game. You're forcing some of these guys into the game that we haven't been, been able to necessarily rely on. Um, and I just think that's, that's an awesome, uh, perspective there, but, um, at the same time, you know, with a lot of those starts, we've given up runs in the first inning and then not given up runs for the next four. Um, and maybe that's, I don't, you know, this is all up to perspective basically, cause we're not in the clubhouse, but, um, maybe 
you know, focusing more on that first or, you know, putting a real emphasis to where you're not having, you're not having some of these, because then it force it, it has the other pitcher able to attack some of our hitters in the first and second innings in different ways um, because they don't have to avoid the long ball at that point, um, especially in that um, St. Louis series when it felt like every single game Tommy Edmond was on and Paul Goldschmidt homered right after. So it's kind of um, – I don't want to say deflating because when you give up one run in the first inning, you're not out of the game or even two runs, but it's kind of like you, you're only putting yourself in a worse spot down the road, especially when you, I mean, I felt like we consistently threw Paul Goldschmidt the same way all series. And maybe I'm wrong here, but if a guy homers off you the first game in the first inning, I wouldn't suggest throwing him the same way in the second game. Um, and to me, our offense has been okay, not awesome. You know, we've we've expected awesome from some of these from some of these games where we put up seven runs in like six or seven games in a row, but when you put up 12 and then the very next game you put up one or you put up six or seven and the next game you put up two, it's really, again, you're forcing your pitchers at that point to be perfect. You're forcing your bullpen to be perfect to where if, if they give up three runs, you're done. Yeah. I mean, that's just it. Three runs in a game. And, to me, I would like to, especially tonight, you know, you've got this game going on right now, 4-3, to where um, we've had nine hits, which is good, which is awesome. But, like, we've seen Wade Miley before throw really deep into games and really, like, keep a low pitch count, almost like a Greg Maddox type. And through seven innings, he had 101 pitches. You know, seven innings is a decent amount of work, but it's not what you come to expect from a guy who create like generates a lot of contact, a lot of weak contact. Um, you know, you don't expect 101 pitches through seven innings. And to me, that just kind of wraps up that point of there has to be a more efficient way. There just has to be. You, We can't, like Tyler Malley and Luis Castillo, when they are, you know, they're strikeout pitchers, and even Sonny Gray for that matter. They're strikeout pitchers. But it's not helping us when you're giving up four runs in five innings and you've got 110 pitches, and now in the fifth or sixth inning, we've got to bring somebody in from the bullpen. I mean, this bullpen's been bad. Like, don't don't sugarcoat it. It's been bad. So when you force the hand of the manager and you're up to 100 pitches within four innings, five innings, you know, I, I just – you're really handcuffing David Bell at that point, really handcuffing the offense in a sense to where they have to put up runs early and fast, 
and they've got to put up a lot of them. And to that point um, that you made before, like when you handcuff your offense, they feel like they, at least from a fan's perspective, they feel like they have to hit home runs at that point because they have to get on the board that it can't come where, um, you know, you get a, a, you start off with a single and you advance the guy over on a wild pitch, you know, whatever, where he circles the bases on the base pass to where you feel like you want to get on the board right then, right now. And it's really putting us at a disadvantage to really just handcuff our hitters. Yeah, there, there's no real, like you said, there's no real sugarcoating that. And, you know, when you put in those bullpen arms, you know, after five innings, you know, the way the game is played now, you're putting them in more high leverage situations. So in these closer games, you know, say it's a 4-3 game through five innings, you know, you're going to see a Sessa. You're going to see a Michael Givens. You're going to see a Justin Wilson. More of these top arms in the bullpen, you know, are going to be expected to throw more innings. And that's kind of to the point that you were making of, you know, we can't expect these lower tier arms uh, like Garrett, like Lorenzen uh, to go later in these games uh, in you know, save situations, you know, because we've already, we're already working these, these higher tier arms and then they're unavailable for, you know, the next two or three games because they've already thrown say 30, 40 pitches. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like if we can get a consistent, at least, five to six innings a night from a starter, it puts us in a really good spot to where you can have a reliever go maybe more than an inning. Um, Like we used Sims basically the majority of the time in that role last year um, to where he was, he was getting one or two outs in an inning to end the inning and then going out for the next. Um, I don't hate that idea at all. You know, you've got your best arms, use them. But just like you said, when when you're using Sessa in the fifth inning, there's an issue. Like, that just – I almost look at it in a sense of you're you're throwing – in four innings, if you throw 100 pitches, that's just – that's crazy to me. Um, you know, if you don't like, if you don't throw, like if if you're perfect through four and you're throwing a hundred pitches, you're throwing almost nine pitches a batter. And that's realistically what's happening. So if you're giving up four runs and like, it's awesome that Sonny Gray has eight strikeouts through four or five innings. Like, you know, you like, you love to see that number, but then you see right beside it, four earned runs on a hundred pitches. And he only threw four innings that just, I would almost rather, rather you strike out 
three or four batters go seven innings and gave up, give up the same amount of runs. That because it's less taxing on the bullpen for the series to come, for the games to come, and especially for that stretch where we were playing on consecutive days for almost a month, where if somebody throws upwards of 20, 25 pitches out of the bullpen, they may not be available for two games instead of just one. So if you pitch in one game of the series, you're essentially eliminating yourself from the other two. And that's just, that's awful. That just can't happen. Um, And like you said, our pitching has been, starters have been on and off depending on, you know, you know, we've had games like Maui against Milwaukee where he's throwing eight innings of one, two hit baseball. And then you're seeing Gutierrez and Castillo basically blowing up in the first three innings. Um, you know, we've seen up and downs. I would like to find a happy medium. I think we would all like that um, to where we're going a little bit longer and maybe giving up a little less of the uh, earned runs at that point. Um, but, you know, all you can really all you can really hope for is honestly – from what you just said about the first inning, all I can really think about now is hoping that we can get out of those first two or three innings. Um, because that, I feel like that's really been handcuffing us these last, you know, six games, two and four in the last six, like against Detroit. You know, that just can't happen. Like Detroit, I know that, uh, I understand that they're not as bad as they were last year, but they are not good at all. They're still last. You know, they're still to the point where they are going to lose 90 games, you know, close to it. So when you're playing for a wild card spot and you're losing series to teams that have 80 to 90 losses on their schedule, it's kind of hard to justify why we should be in the playoffs right now. So I saw this tweet and I thought it would be interesting to bring up. Um, So there's been a lot of talk around, um, you know, Cassianos. He obviously has a player option. Um, David Bell's contract expires this year. And I really, I thought this perfectly summed up how I wanted to put it, you know, how I, how I wanted to, um, wanted to express this, but if Castellanos is going to leave, um, and Castellini kind of waves Barry Lart, like, Let's say Barry Larkin is the new manager um, next season because I think that's the the ultimate like prime candidate. So let's say it's Barry Larkin and let's say Cassianos is gone wherever he goes. I think personally that's a downgrade. There's a lot of people that think that 
that's an upgrade in the sense of getting David Bell out of there. But to me, I just can't justify losing your best player for and Barry Larkin, Reds Hall of Famer, Hall of Famer, you know, one of the greatest shortstops ever. But to justify a guy that has no managerial experience anywhere coming in and losing your best player and probably top 10 to 15 hitters in all of baseball. I can't really justify that and to say, Oh, we improved. Yeah. We're really, I mean, in the first place, if Castellanos does go, I mean, we're pretty much witnessing one of the greatest tragedies in Cincinnati sports. Like, that's already really deflating. Like you said, he's one of the best hitters in the game. He loves hitting in this ballpark. I mean, on a nightly basis, he absolutely mashes in Great American Ballpark. Um, you know, so that's automatically, like you said, a, a huge, humongous uh, downgrade in that outfield. Um and then I myself have never really been a fan of the idea of Barry Larkin as a manager. You know, like you said, he doesn't really have that managerial experience. Don't get me wrong. One, like you said, one of the greatest shortstops of all time. He's a Hall of Famer. Um, and he has experience with working uh, with some of uh, – the young players in the game uh, in the off season, you know, he'll go out, he'll work with them, coach them. Um, I know he did that with uh, Senzel a few years ago when uh, they were trying, they were testing him out at shortstop. Um, he worked with him in like spring training and then the off season. Um, but, you know, j- just listen to his uh, color commentary on Bally sports and you know that that kind of kind of makes me a little hesitant there but um you know just just bait on the basis of you know he's Barry Larkin he's one of the greatest ever that really isn't a reason to you know put a guy in as a manager I mean you can lark you can Look at Kirk Gibson, one of the greats of, you know, the 70s, 80s, you know, for the Dodgers, Tigers, et cetera. And, you know, his tenure in Arizona, you know, didn't really work out so well. Um, You can look at Barry Bonds as a hitting coach for the Marlins. You know, look how that turned out. But, there, you know, there was obviously a lot more going on with that uh, behind the scenes uh, that's come out. But. You know, it, it more often than not, you'll find uh, just just hiring someone based on their status as a player. You know, it doesn't really work out that well. You know, you have to have that sort of baseball intuition, that sort of, you know, situational mind. And and don't get me wrong, you know. We don't know if Barry Larkin has that. 
that sort of managerial intuition that, you know, a lot of great managers have, a lot of great coaches have. So, you know, maybe he does, but, you know, you find that out before, you know, going out and just hiring him, like I said, based on his status as one of the greats. Yeah, and I mean, I just can't, like, along the same thing that you said, like, if, so let's just kind of look back at David Bell's tenure with with Cincinnati. Um, what has he done? Okay, well, we had a Cy Young. Um, you know, we improved very, very vastly um, with the addition of Moustakis and Castellanos and then obviously Bauer. Um, but to me, I just don't, I can't justify a playoff, a playoff berth and a near wild card. Let's just, let's just say we don't make the playoffs this year, a near wild card season to say, Oh, three seasons. See you, David Bell. Like, I, I don't know if, if somebody, let's say someone else was the manager of the Cincinnati Reds, would this team be as uh, like different? Would these seasons result in different? Would we have different results? You know, I honestly don't think so. I think this is. A, a very well um, documented as middle of the pack kind of team. Um, we're not we're not the best team. Like we're we're not in that top seven, and we're not in that like bottom 10, 11. You know we're somewhere in in the, a given season you fluctuate, but I think we're somewhere in that ten to eighteen, nineteen range. To where, you know, we we have a chance at the playoffs every year with a wild card berth, but to me, I just can't justify not having him back for at least a couple of years. Um, and to your point, it's kind of exactly what I've thought as well. You know, what I just don't understand what exactly um, people want, like people think constitutes a good manager in baseball. Um, what has Barry Larkin shown you or, you know, what has David Bell not shown you to make you think that Barry Larkin is the right man for the job and David Bell is not. Um, and I thought the same way about, um, about Dusty and, I didn't really think that about Brian Price. I didn't like Brian Price all that much. Um, I thought he was a little too soft-spoken for my liking. Because uh, I, I don't know, it may be just me, but whenever he would go out and argue or get close to being ejected, um, I kind of laughed. Like, it looked very comical. Um, he looks like a big teddy bear. Um, even when he's mad, he looks like he's kind of... Um, I want you to know that I'm mad, but I want you to like me after this. 
Um, I just, to me, the current state of the Reds and David Bell has not given me any reason to say, I don't want David Bell as our manager. And maybe people will uh, come back and argue that you want someone that you are gung ho about and you want as manager, like you want as manager of the Reds or as long as they live. But to me, I'm just kind of indifferent about the decisions that have been made and who's been put on the field. Um, Because ultimately, you know, when we look back, can we really blame some of those losing streaks in the middle of the year on David Bell? I mean, our, our bullpen was filled with guys with six ERAs. You got to put one of them out there. Somebody's got to pitch. If you're not putting out Hoffman, you're putting out Amir Garrett. If you're not putting out Amir Garrett, you're putting out Brock. If you're not putting out Brock, you're putting out Osich. I mean, I seeing out Perez. The list goes on and on and on of relievers that in the middle of the year that that's who we had. That was it. You know, and again, to me, I just don't know how much you can say, well, that's David Bell's fault. I don't think so. You know, how how many times have we looked at a lineup and said, realistically, we can make this better? To me, I don't know how many times. Um, You've got the general consensus at the top when Winker's healthy, you're India, Winker, Castellanos, Vado, Moustakis, somewhere around that that 5-6. And if Moustakis isn't playing, Suarez is probably on the field. Farmer in that 6-7-5 range, somewhere around there. Um, But realistically, this lineup has worked at times, and it hasn't. So... To me, I kind of look at the success uh, of the players that are on the field, um, and talk about Suar- talk obviously about Suarez, um, about Winker going down, and now you're having to play Aquino and Akiyama, two guys that yeah, Akiyama can hit at 500 feet, or he can strike out four out of ten times. Um, Akiyama just not great hitter, but he's very good in the field. Um, you know, to me, he's done the, probably not the absolute best, but, um, given like load management and stuff like that to where I think if, if Winker was healthy, I think we're on a much different trajectory than we are right now, but, um, come playoff time, you're going to have, all five starters, or even four for that matter, um, ready and available. There's not going to be a guy that's hurt um, in the in the rotation, and I think that's very very important to notice because um, you see, like Tampa Bay with Glasnow, you know, goes down, and um, a couple year years ago, the same thing with. Um, Carrasco in Cleveland, like Carrasco in Cleveland, when they had Lindor, when Lindor was still in Cleveland, Carrasco not being there, I think, ultimately ruined their chances of a playoff berth. 
And, you know, to me, that matters. That's that kind of stuff matters. Um, and it might not to a lot of people. It may be all about just trying to win 90 games in the regular season and getting kicked out in the first round. But to me, I'm happy with David Bell. So great segue here. Castellini, Nick Kroll, September call-ups. Who would you like to see? Who do you think is a maybe a longer shot, but you would really, really appreciate if they were up? Well, first and foremost, um, really, uh, Alejo Lopez and Jose Barrero, um, the, the two obvious, um, you know, the two obvious guys. Um, Lopez, you know, that infielder, kind of in need of infield depth right now. It wouldn't really hurt, um, especially, you know, giving Kyle Farmer an off day. Uh, Moustakas has been on and off. Uh, sort of banged up Suarez isn't performing um, plug one of those two guys in at either that shortstop spot, that third base spot, you know, maybe even second base if India needs a day off. Um, and, you know, you, you've, I mean, it, it's pretty much just replace. It's a good bat, um, pretty solid fielding uh, in that spot. Um, especially with, uh, unfortunately, the lack of performance from Mr. Abel Cabrera. Um, you know, the line of the shields had he's been all right, but you know, he's not really an infielder, he's an outfielder. So, um, a guy who maybe is a little less likely, but I would really like to see is Hunter Green. Um, a guy to really help out in that bullpen. Um, you know, he's been absolutely dominant in Louisville this year. Um, I think he's shown that he's ready. Um, I think he thinks that he's ready, you know, hopefully, um, you know, he, he gets, he gets a chance, uh, especially coming down this stretch, you know, it would not hurt to look at him, especially like we've went over uh, with sort of the inconsistency in the early innings of the starting rotation, uh, kind of using him as an extra arm in there. Um, so, and then a guy who, you know, there's a very small percentage um I think you'll agree with this uh, is Nick Lodolo. Um, I think really he's done, he's performed very well. Um, but at this point in his very young career, you got to just say, you know what, kid, you had a great season, but, you know, we're going to protect you. This is, we're we are in a tough spot right now, but you know you're one of those guys that we feel like is a very key part of our future, and we don't want to take a risk. 
Yeah. I mean, so, you know, like we were talking about this before we started, but, um, you know, if, if Lodolo was coming up this year, I feel like he would have been almost on the same track as Hunter Green to where, um, he would have been called up almost simultaneously to AAA with Hunter Green. But just like you said, I think that the front office, you know, the fans view Lodolo as a generational type pitcher. Um, and to risk injury, service time, stuff like that for a potential chance at a wild card, you know, I'm, I'm going to default to the next seven, eight years. I'll, I'll take seven, eight years of, and a Cy Young or two fingers crossed, but I'll take that over three games, potentially ruining what we could have in the future. Um, but and I think that ultimately Hunter Green fills that void. Um, you know what? What's an interesting, um, interesting concept to maybe consider? Do you remember what happened when Milwaukee was playing Los Angeles in um, the playoffs? It was it was probably 2019. Um, they used Wade Miley as a little opener um i would not be opposed to maybe trying the idea of bringing up hunter green using him as a one or two inning guy or even like a sessa or a justin wilson um i wouldn't i think givens is givens is probably our back end guy um Sessa has been kind of the Swiss army knife. So if we were going to use an opener of any kind, I think Sessa is the prime candidate for that. Um, but again, the, the kind of struggles in the first inning or the first couple innings, it would be really interesting to see that extremely interesting to see that um, kind of play out and being, you know, as analytical as he is, David Bell you know, maybe we do give it a try. Um, I don't know how that would work out because I think you still run into the same problem of you're only really getting um, three or four innings out of your starters and you're kind of stuck in the seventh with Sessa not in the bullpen. Um, but I think it could really jumpstart, really jumpstart this team. Um, maybe an idea, but I think we're on the same page. I think Lodolo stays down. Um, Alejo Lopez, Jose Barrero, almost 100% guaranteed. I would say put the mortgage on it. Um, they're going to be called up. Jose Barrero, you know, they – they kind of moved him around to where in BP um, and in fielding practice, you saw him sometimes at short, sometimes at third, sometimes at second, sometimes even in left. Um, you know, 
you don't do all of that and then just say, uh, no, we're fine. You know, Alejo Lopez is also one of those guys can play all over and has proven he can play all over. You know, maybe it's that one or two key missing pieces that can really, I don't know if jump starts the right word, but really put some of our guys like Castellanos, like India, um, like Vado, like Winker when he comes back in a really good spot to where, um, you know, you've got Barrero and Lopez at the bottom of the lineup, you know, and you're not having to rely on Shogak, Yama, and Aquino anymore. Um, but if if we're looking down, I think those are the four prime candidates for it. Um, you're seeing Green, Barrero, and Lopez really thrown around, um, you know, and proven that they've they've gone up up and down all year. You know, Lopez and Barrero. Um, but to just speak on Hunter Green for a second, if if he was in Double A still, I think we're still talking about him like Nick Lodolo. You know, I'm not sure that we bring him up. We fast tracked him to Triple A. I think there is no way we do not bring him up at this point. Um, maybe I don't. How do you feel about that? Um. Yeah. Sorry. Your point. I I really don't think that he would have. Uh, been in this position had he not been called up when he had um that that's sort of a position where you know like Lodolo you want to protect him um that's sort of especially with all the stock that was put into him I mean he was the second draft pick second overall um in 2016 2017 somewhere around there um so, and then with all the injuries he's had, um, you know, he's been on and off with arm issues. Um, all the stock that you've put into him as a pitcher, you know, he could have been a shortstop. He could have been, you know, a two-way guy. May still be a two-way guy. So, you know, with all this sort of stock that you've put into him already, um, and sort of fast tracking him. I think, like you said, that was sort of uh, the defining sort of uh, factor in uh, his sort of situation that he's in right now. I think where you know you and I both think that he gets called up. Yeah, and the same same thing, kind of. It's like, why not? If you're, and we talked about this before also, but if you're a week and a half from the end of the season and you're up two to three and a half games, if, like, why not use him in a high leverage situation and let's just see what we got? Um, Green's kind of that guy where, um, 
I don't really know if he, and maybe this is a point of discussion too, but to me, we haven't exclusively used him as a starter or exclusively used him as a reliever. Um, and he, he throws 103 miles an hour, 102, 103. So to me, I'm not sure what the move is for the future, but to like to not at least try both, um, you know, this late in the season, I think would especially after you fast tracked him to Triple A after Tommy John, that would be so dumb to do. If if we were not going to call him up, he probably would still be in the kind of beginning stages of of pitching again. You know, he would have taken even more time off than he already did. So to me, to me, I think you're looking at Lopez Barrera Green coming up. Um, and I think we both agree on that. Um, so moving on, a point that I thought was an interesting discussion and a lot of people have differing opinions on. Um, with Miguel Cabrera recently hitting his 500th home run, it really made me think about kind of the current um, Hall of Famers that if they they dropped dead today, tomorrow they'd be in the Hall of Fame. Um, so just off the top of my head, I think that in a consistent con- – consensus around baseball there are three that nobody can really dispute um i think that's obviously Pujols. i think it's obviously miguel cabrera and i think that's more than likely buster posey on the third one vado has recently after um after climbing up several lists in reds all-time statistics has been the recent discussion of a lot of, is he a Hall of Famer or not? Um, To me, I don't think it's a discussion. I think that he is, and and it's a shame that he played in the same era as Miguel Cabrera and as Albert Pujols, because I think he gets compared to them a lot. Um, where when Miguel Cabrera was having triple crown years and Pujols seemingly hit a home run every single game um, to where I don't think Joey Votto's game is just – I don't think it's built for that. I think he has – he's better in other aspects of the game than Miguel Cabrera and Albert Pujols to where he's drawing – he's drawing a lot more – a lot more walks, um, deeper into counts. And to me, that that matters a little bit. Um, I don't have the stats in front of me, but I would almost assume that Joey Votto has a higher on-base percentage or very, very close to it than Miguel Cabrera and Albert Pujols. Um, and I don't know if it's kind of what you value. Um, a lot of people value more power 
more kind of um, remember or uh, recognizable seasons to where if I said Miguel Cabrera's triple crown year, everybody knows, you know, remembers at least some part of that year or remembers that it happened. If I said Joey Votto's almost 450 on base percentage, no outside of Reds fans, I don't know if that's really a rememberable thing or uh, a remarkable thing. It, it's a remarkable thing. I don't know if people would be able to recall that right off the top of their head. Um, and, um, I think it's it's important to stress that, which I think is very, very uh, stupid, the way Hall of Fame voting is, um, you know, where it's really subjective. And a lot of guys have been left off that statistically should be in the Hall of Fame because of, you know, stuff off the field or, you know, maybe even stuff on the field, but um, where some guys that should be in aren't in and some guys that statistically probably shouldn't be in are in. Um, So to me, I think it's four no-brainers position player-wise. Pujols, Posey, Cabrera, Vado. I think those are the four kind of um, automatics. I think if if those four were on the ballot today, I think all four of them get in. Um, but I think two of the more interesting names of position players that should, shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame are kind of on the fringe. Yadier Molina and Mike Trout. Is Mike Trout right now a Hall of Famer? Yes, he is the best player in baseball right now when he's on the field. But is he a true and blue Hall of Famer if he never played again? You know, I I, I think he certainly has numbers. Um, you know, across his career, three hundred five batting average, um, one. 0.002 OPS and he over his career he has 310 home runs 816 RBIs three-time MVP nine-time all-star um, he's got eight silver sluggers and he was a, he was the rookie of the year uh, in 2012 so you know there's something to be said though about you know, playoff experience and um, the sort of ring factor. And, you know, Trout really doesn't have either of those. He doesn't have a World Series ring. Um, He doesn't really have that much uh, playoff experience. You know, the only year that the Angels have made the playoffs since Trout was around was 2014. And that was a loss in the ALDS to the Royals. So, you know, it, it it's really tough. You know, regular season numbers alone, certainly Trout is more than in, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, like I said, there there's something really to be said about that postseason uh, sort of experience 
experience, uh, which, you know, a guy like Yachty has, um, unfortunately, you know, he's a two-time world series champion. Um, and he's got more gold gloves than anyone can count. Um, he's certainly got, uh, some some very solid, uh, I'll say, uh, career stats uh, offensive wise as well. Um, you know, certainly, you know, one honestly, let's just be honest. All bias aside, he's one of the best catchers of you know of the past of this century so far. So, I mean, I, I think Yachty definitely makes it in. Um, that, that's just in my opinion. Um, and I think Trout is one of those guys right now who's fringe. Yeah, I, um, I go back and forth on Trout a lot. Um, the same reasons that to me, I think he is, um, you know, to be the best player, you know, in, in baseball f- since he came probably a couple years after he came to the league. Um, it's really been tough to kind of like, you can't really take that away. Um, and, just looking at the baseball reference page, this is something again that I had. Um, I could probably assume, but I didn't. I had no idea. Take away last year's COVID year, where only sixty games were played. Since he came into the league in 2012, there's only been one year where he's finished fourth, and every other year he's finished either first or second. That's unbelievable um, to keep that up for a 10-year period. Um, that's just crazy. Um, he's been doing it since he's 20. He's not even 30 yet. If I think Mike Trout is a Hall of Famer, but I don't get to vote. Um Barry Bonds has left off the off the list for a reason, um, and I think Mike Trout will be will be in that same category of. There's always going to be a reason to say Mike Trout should not be a Hall of Famer, uh, instead of trying to argue that he should. Like for example, just like you said before, with the the postseason experience and uh, sort of like you can be the best player in baseball, but you never made it past the first round. Never. And that counts to some of the voters. Even though as much as baseball is a team sport and you need, you need 25 guys up and down all year to win, they're going to look at his individual stats and try to pick out something to say, Um, you know, a lot. 
a lot of Barry Bonds and like Pete Rose talk um, has been off the field stuff. But to me, Mike Trout's is more on the field. Um, and there is also something to be said that um, it's quite a popularity contest. Um, you know, there are guys that probably deserve to be on the ballot that don't get the votes one year and are never on the ballot again. Never. Um, so to me, yes, he is a Hall of Famer. If I had to vote, I'm checking the yes box. But I think there are some older players, put it like that, that will look at postseason experience, team success, and kind of him being the best player, but not really being the face of baseball. And take that into account and use it against him. Right. You know, one thing, uh, sort of off topic, but that one thing that's really insane to think about is Trout's 30. That's insane to think about. Um, just looking at his baseball reference page right now, that that makes me feel old. But, um, you know, it, and it, it's really a shame because it's, it's the same case with Votto, you know, with the Castellini's not being able to put an own, put a winner on the field. Um, it's, it's sort of been the same case with the angels and, you know, trout is the best player in the world. You know, you obviously Otani, but you know, trout for the past decade has been the best player, you know, in the world. So, and the stats that he's put up certainly back that up. Um, like we've gone over. So it, it's just really an unfortunate situation, you know, where the sort of politicking of the ring factor, the postseason experience, and then sort of, you know, that sort of, and I would make a case, you know, that would sort of be an off field thing uh, with the ownership you know, not being able to put a, a winner around a Mike Trout, a Joey Votto. So, you know, it, it's really just an unfortunate situation that, you know, the voters would say, yeah, he's a fringe guy. But, you know, you look at the stats and there's really just stats alone. He's a Hall of Famer. He's first ballot. I mean, a decade of being the best player in the world, putting up the numbers that he's had, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. But yet, you know, guys like Derek Jeter, one of the most overrated shortstops of all time, is like a 99.9% gets 99.9% of the votes on the first ballot. You've got to be kidding me. I mean, that that's just the fact that he played in New York alone and the fact that he, you know, won a couple rings. And, you know, he's the, certainly the most overrated defensive shortstop of all time. You know, 
Trout's the best player of this generation. So it it's yeah. in the face to, of baseball. Uh, to piggyback on that, Ken Griffey Jr. should have been the first unanimous one hundred percent. Um and it's a shame that someone legitimately looked at a Hall of Fame ballot. And, and that's what's so stupid that, about this whole process is the writers voting. Like it are, are you kidding? It's just pure bias. I mean, it, come on. You know, it, there was somebody that legitimately looked at a ballot of players and thought to themselves that Ken Griffey Jr. does not deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Ken Griffey Jr. Um, you know, I, I would love to kind of hear the explanation because it was only one voter. It was one. Um, but that's just ridiculous to me to say that Ken Griffey Jr. is not a Hall of Famer. But um, moving on, I think, you know, again, looking at his baseball reference page, there are two things that kind of jump off the page to me. Again, take away the COVID year and take away his rookie season where he only played in 40 games. Every other year, he's led the league in at least one major statistical category. You know, it led the league in runs, led the league in RBIs, stolen bases, walks, on-base percentage, slugging, OPS, total bases. You know, the list just goes on and on to say, I'm sorry, but if you lead the league in in any sort of statistical category for nine years in a row, yeah. Nine years is a very, very long time. He has a 162-game average of hitting 305 with 1,002 OPS with 39 home runs, 103 RBIs, and really a strikeout-to-walk ratio of 1 to 1.5. That is unbelievable. That's, again, and it shows in the voting, MVP every year. You're in, you're in the discussion every single year. Um, and to me, I think it's more of a discussion on Yachty than it is Trout. Um, and I think it's the same discussion on kind of why you think that about Jeter as well. Um, that when somebody plays for so long and plays that many games, you're bound to lead in some cumulative statistical category. Um, you know, when, when you play for 14, 15, however many years in the same position for the same franchise, I would be very surprised if you were not on the in the top five of at least something um 
you know, is he a Hall of Famer? I think yes, because of the cumulative statistics that he's, you know, racked up. But I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little, you have to dig a little deeper on Yachty than you do on Derek Jeter. Um, I think when Derek Jeter was in the, on a team that was in the spotlight. Um, and to me, I don't know if he was ever, when A-Rod was there, he was not the best player on that team by a long shot. Um, and to say, like, and, uh, you know, this is a, something that you touched on in a sense when you said that um, ownership not putting a team around him isn't Mike Trout or Joey Votto's problem. People put that into consideration when they talk about Derek Jeter and the championships he won. Let's not forget that they had double the payroll of almost half the league. So when you've got a team of Matsui, Granderson's out there for some years, um, you had Bernie Williams on a lot of those teams, um, Cano, uh, Teixeira, A-Rod, Sabathia was getting paid a shit ton of money, Jorge Posada, you know, Andy Pettit, Rivera is getting paid. You've, you're talking about all these guys, and they are true and blue um, Hall of Famers when it comes to, again, cumulative statistical uh, considerations. But if you put Derek Jeter on let's just say like the nationals let's just put them on a team the nationals they've recently won a world series you know they've with bryce harper they were kind of in and out in those years is is derek jeter talked about in the same regard that he is today not a chance in hell no way Uh uh-uh no way so Overrated, yes. I think a a lot overrated when you think about it like that. Like if you put Mike Trout on those uh, Giants teams that were winning all those championships in the in the middle of those teens era, there is not one reason that you would not put him in the Hall of Fame. But if you put Derek Jeter on, you know like the Pirates, let's per se again. They've had some playoff experience, but never really gotten to where every team wants to go, not gotten to the World Series. He's viewed in such a different light than what he is now. And to me, that's a huge factor. If Derek Jeter doesn't win those championships and he wasn't even the best player on that team, That's just not – to me, I just can't accept that he's this, you know, god of baseball. Um, To me, he's an above-average player that played for a long time with a lot of other very, very great players around him. And, you know, 
that's just the way the cookie crumbles on some players and their kind of careers and how they fall. But I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said that. Um, do I think he still deserves to be in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Um, but I think he's looked at in a light that's almost like different than some players that were very, very similar to him. Um, and I would almost, maybe not statistics-wise, but I would almost put it in the same realm of Yachty where I'm saying, well, they played for such a long time that no shit, they've got like, you know, they've got a, a lot, you know, piled up. You played for 14, 15 years and started all, 14 years um, versus guys who have, you know, flip-flop teams a couple times or, you know, got called up when they were 30, 31 and played until they were 35. Yeah. You're going to have better cumulative stats than they have. So I think you're correct. Um, a lot of people don't like that. But, you know, it's just the truth. Um, so moving on and looking at some of these Hall of Fame cases, pitchers-wise, I thought the pitchers was a lot more interesting than the hitters were. Um, there are some names that were kind of brought up um, so off the bat, I want to say Verlander, Granky, Kershaw, Scherzer, um, some, some other names that are on here. Um, I am looking sort of at a, a list of players that have played, um, a certain amount of time. Felix Hernandez, Adam Wainwright, John Lester. To me, you can cross two of those off. I think Felix is a very, very, very interesting discussion because he's almost built like a DeGrom um, statistical season to where he was playing on some shitty Mariners teams, some very bad Mariners teams, and he had an ERA that was unbelievable – and then you look at it, and apparently somehow they went 10 and 10 with him on the mound. So what are your kind of thoughts on the um, Lester, Wainwright, Hernandez kind of category um, that's a step below the four that were mentioned? Yeah, you know, um, I think, you know, the voter side of things, um, you know, Lester, sort of that five-time All-Star, three-time World Series winner. Um, I think, you know, they really find that appealing, um, even though he's, he's never really led one of those uh, statistical categories or, you know, was ever really at the top. Uh, I mean, he, he was certainly in the upper echelon 
uh, for a couple of years, you know, um, especially his years with uh, the Red Sox going into Oakland and then uh, his first couple of years with, with uh, Chicago. But, you know, he's personally, I, I don't, sort of like the case with Trout, I don't find rings all that appealing. You know, I look at how good you are statistically. And to me, Lester, you know, 366 ERA um, and uh, in 447 games, you know, that, that, that to me isn't really um, – I mean, he's got a 44.3 war, um, but that's really, he isn't, you know, he's sort of in that category to me with Wainwright of he's not really Hall of Fame worthy. To me, a guy like Felix is certainly, you know, at the top. I mean, he was the best pitcher in the American League for a stretch of 10 years from 2005 to 2015 he was the guy um he has that one Cy Young in 2010 um you know it's another unfortunate case of he never got a team behind him um you know guys like Lester and Wainwright they had the teams behind them they ended up winning rings you know but Felix is, he was the man. I mean, there's no other way to put it. He was, no one could touch him. Um, I mean, so to me, you know, Felix, his dominance uh, over uh, that 10, that 10 year period alone to me deserves a whole he's certainly in so um and then you know guys like Lester guys like Wainwright who have certainly put together you know a very you know a, an incredible career but never really strung together you know a a leader a leaderboard dominance like Felix did, um, that they to me aren't really uh, Hall of Fame level. Yeah, and uh, the call, the broadcast of Felix's perfect game. I mean, that's like goosebumps, you know. And see, this is where. I kind of am. Um, I think we're just talking the same thing when it comes to Wainwright and Lester. You know, I think Lester's real calling card is the kind of postseason success he has. And I'm on the same boat as you, where rings come from a team, they don't come from individual players. You know, at I'm not holding against Mike Trout or Joey Votto that they didn't have a ring, but I'm not giving 
I'm not giving like Derek Jeter or John Lester and saying, you know, you should, I'm not holding it to a higher standard because they do have that postseason experience. Um, you know, I, it's tough for me. Um, I think Wayne Wright's kind of the same way with the postseason stuff um, with some of those Cardinals teams. But I think you said it best. I think Felix is no doubt a Hall of Famer. Um, Felix and then the four guys that I had mentioned before, Verlander, Granke, Scherzer, and uh, Kershaw. Kershaw. Um, I've heard some conflicting arguments on Kershaw, but I saw this article mentions a statistic, and I thought it was very, uh, um, very similar. They compared him to Pedro Martinez through his age 32 season um, because they were on, obviously, teams that have had a lot of success, and they were kind of the dog of the team, if not second in line. Um, but so Kershaw through his age 32 is 175 and 76, but has a career ERA of 2.43. Pedro Martinez was 182 and 76 and had a 271 ERA. I don't think there's a doubt that Pedro Martinez is a Hall of Famer. So I don't really see the kind of hesitation with Kershaw. Um, and some will point to his early postseason struggles. But I, again, I'm not like, I'm not holding it against him throwing, you know, let's say I'm not very uh, positive on how many games exactly it was. But he throws eight bad games in a postseason overall in his career. I'm not saying, well, that that defines your Hall of Fame status. Um, let's see. I've got it right now. He's thrown in, oh, shoot, 37 games. Uh, a lot more than I thought. He started 30 of them. So let's just take the 30 because he is a starter. Um, 419 ERA, 13 and 12 win loss. He's thrown 189 innings total. You know, I'm, I don't know, maybe people feel a little different. I'm not holding that against him saying, well, you're not a Hall of Famer anymore, even though you've been easily one of the best pitchers of the last decade. And I think the same way about um, Granky and Verlander. You know, Granky in Kansas City, a lot of people forget, but he was that guy. I mean, he was getting talked about as, again, top five pitcher in baseball. Um, same with Verlander. Verlander on those Tiger teams, um, one of the most – popular YouTube baseball videos is him in the eighth inning against the Indians and he's thrown 
100 to 110 pitches at this point, and he's still throwing 102 miles an hour. Um, I just think that, I mean, that those four guys, I would like to hear if there's any case on those four why they shouldn't be because I, I really can't think of one. Um, I think they're in the same way of a uh, a Pujols, Cabrera, Posey type where they've done it for so long on such a high level that it's kind of hard to be like, well, these 30 games really define your whole career. Um, so realistically, I think if we're counting Votto, you've got Pujols, Posey, Cabrera, Votto, Verlander, Granke, Scherzer, Kershaw, and Felix Hernandez is what we're counting. So we're saying that there's nine. Nine right now. Well, ten, Trout. Are we putting Trout in? We're putting Trout in. I'd say, yeah. Um, so, so let's say ten. If – I think that's a good amount. Um, they've got some other guys that we could talk about, like a um, – I saw on here, steroids ruin your chances. Let's just put that out in the open. Um, again, that you've seen it with Barry Bonds. So I think these guys – um, are off the list because of that. You've got Nelson Cruz busted for steroids, suspended 50 games. Um, Robinson Cano and Ryan Braun. Ryan Braun doesn't have that MVP season without the steroids. And Cano doesn't have the career numbers that he has because he tested for, um, he tested positive twice. So that I think that almost exclusively, especially based on past voter history, there's just no way that the voters are going to say yes to Robinson Cano and no to Barry Bonds. Um, again, I just don't think there's another argument for that. Um, you know, Pete Rose, again, off the field has kept him out of the Hall of Fame. Statistically, he is one of the greatest hitters of all time. Um, so, yeah, it sucks, but ultimately, if you're going to play that card for, you know, Pete Rose, Barry Bonds, people of that nature, you have to play it for Ryan Braun, Robinson Cano, uh, Nelson Cruz as well. As much as everybody loves Nelson Cruz, let's not forget steroids. You know, you can't really um, take that away. Another interesting discussion, um, Astros, Correa, and Altuve, I think, are the prime candidates. Bregman, you could throw in there. Are, if they have a Hall of Fame-type career, are you saying no because of the 
uh, cheating scandals going from what it was it 2017 to 2019, somewhere around there. Um, and they won a world series and, you know, of that nature, are you saying no because of that? I'm saying no. Um, you know, it, it's sort of on the same scale, like you mentioned, uh, Nelson Cruz, uh, you know, steroid guys, you know, even though you still have to put the bat on the ball and, you know, you still have to record 27 outs in a game, uh, there is something to be said about, you know, gaining an advantage, um, whether it be through steroids, uh, illegally stealing the signs, you know, that advantage to me automatically just discounts you um, from sort of being in that conversation. Yeah. And I think that's a good kind of uh, equating steroids to that, um, to where I, I think just bottom line, it's gaining an advantage through cheating. Um, you know, there's just not a argument around that. You can't say something to say, well, you know, the, the stats prove otherwise. Well, the stats are skewed in a way because of those scandals. And I think ultimately a lot of people will feel the same way. Um, and I think they'll be looked at from the writer's standpoint, especially from those Yankee writers and those Dodger writers. There is no way in hell Altuve is getting those votes. No way. You know, taking that MVP away from Judge, um, you know, winning the World Series, knocking the Yankees out when that was probably their best team in the last 10 years. Um, again, you know, it's kind of hard to get around cheating and winning because of the cheating, having success because of the cheating. Um, you know, there's just no way to really get around that. So I think uh, that's going to wrap it up for us. We'll see you guys in episode 10.